For the ones who get it done, the most important part is the one you need now. And the best partner is the one who can deliver. That's why millions of maintenance and repair pros trust Granger, Because we have professional-grade supplies for every industry, even hard-to-find products. And we have same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders. But most importantly, we have an unwavering commitment to help keep you up and running. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Do you want to learn how to manage your own investments? Are you ready to stop paying investment management fees and start building wealth? The DIY Investing Podcast is dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, and resources you need to be a better investor. Learn how to make investments through the use of fundamental analysis, mental models, and business management insights. Now, here's your host, value investing expert, Trey Henninger. Hello and welcome to the DIY Investing Podcast. My name is Trey Henniger and I'm your host. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to get more great investing content. And if you're listening on YouTube, hit that like button on this video. Any other platform, your five-star rating and review are a great way to support the show. Thank you for your support. So let's dive on into today's topic, when to sell stocks. Today's topic came about from one of my patrons, asking me to chime in on how to view selling stocks. And I think this is a great question. And if you want to ask me questions to be sure to get included those questions on the show, be sure to subscribe as one of my patrons. You can get more information at patreon.org slash or patreon.com slash DIY investing or at DIYinvesting.org slash patron. That's P-A-T-R-O-N. So when should I sell stocks? I think this is a great question because when really when most people are talking about investing, there's a lot of discussion about when to buy stocks and there's relatively limited discussion on when to sell stocks. And I think we tend to spend as value investors a substantially more amount of time, more amount of energy, um, thought into buying our companies and relatively less in selling. And I think in some ways, this can be a problem because you may make a mistake when selling a stock because you don't put as much time and thought into it as, and you might make less mistakes when buying stocks, but if you're still making those mistakes, it can help to overcome those mistakes and improve your returns by thinking about selling. So what are the things that we need to think about when we sell stocks? I think the biggest thing to consider when you're thinking about selling stocks and your mental framework around selling stocks is opportunity cost. Opportunity cost is, I think, the number one mental model to think about when it comes to selling stocks. And I think this is pervasive throughout all aspects of this question because the implicit follow-up when you say, I'm going to sell stock X or I'm going to sell stock Y, is what do you do with the money after you've sold? So there's many different issues we can dive into. We can talk about taxes. We can talk about um, 
the psychology of it. We can talk about finding new companies, measuring between different companies, and we'll get into some of those issues and some of the different ways you can allocate your strategy in the rest of the episode. But I really need to start an opportunity cost because if you think, if you remember only one thing from this episode, it's the, should be the importance of opportunity cost. And this is most encapsulated in the question, what else do I own? And this is the question you need to ask yourself. What else do I own? And what is my current best idea and how much of it do I own? Because if you're going to sell a stock, then you need to answer what you're going to do with that money. And so most likely you're going to do one of two things. You're either going to have that money go to cash and sit there. And so now you're planning on the optionality of cash and the potential to buy another stock in the future or you're going to use that money to directly buy a new stock today. So your opportunity cost is either cash or it's buying another stock today. And that makes a huge difference because at least today in the current market, cash has a low yield. Cash might yield half a percent, 1%, 0.01% if it's sitting in a bank account. And and it is sitting in a bank account for many people who use brokerage accounts. Those brokerage accounts might pay interest rates at a low rate of 0.01%. If your cash is only earning, let's just say generally less than 1%, then that cash is going to be worth less than your discount rate. You're not going to be able to achieve your target rate of return with money sitting in cash. So the only way sitting in cash makes sense is if one, you don't have any other good ideas, and two, there's a potential to have better ideas in the future. Well, the first problem is, at the beginning there, you don't have any other good ideas. Well, simply by the fact that you already own a stock, the stock that you're considering selling, you already own it. The fact that you already own it means that at some point in the past, you considered it a good idea to own that stock. Which means you should think long and hard before selling it. Because if your only alternative is cash, this is a big warning that you may be making a mistake. Because cash has a low return. So your stock needs to have a lower potential return over whatever time period you're thinking about than cash. So if cash has a less than 1% rate of return expectation, then you're basically saying that the stock you're selling has a less than 1% return expectation. If that's not what you're saying, then potentially it's worth keeping if your only alternative is cash. But for many people, the only alternative isn't cash, and those get more difficult. And so this is where it comes into what is your current best idea and how much of it do you own? Now, those are two very important questions, and they're different questions. Basically, my general framework, and there's different strategies, but my general framework is that when I have cash available, I like to use it to buy my current best idea. I learned from Jeff Gannon and from the Focus Compounding podcast about this idea of keeping a watch list, about constantly having a list of what my top ideas are. Well, the top five ideas on that watch list are the five stocks I currently own. Um, one, two, three, four, five, and I have those ordered. So at any time I know what stock is my number one stock, which stock is my number two stock, which stock is my number three, number four, and number five. But after those five, I have a watch list. 
that goes one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, however many I have on the list. Generally don't need more than ten um, at any one time, but you can prune it and 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 periodically update it. And that's a lot of what managing my portfolio is. Checking on my current companies and checking on my watch list companies and then, you know, wandering research trying to find new companies worthy of being on my watch list. So the basic idea is that if I'm considering selling a stock, it's it's really a portfolio management question. I'm going to look at my investments. I'm going to say, I have them ranked one, two, three, four, five. And if you don't rank your stocks portfolio in terms of best to worst idea, I encourage you to do so. I think this is a helpful way to frame this question because now you clearly know which stock you're talking about. And so if you're going to sell stocks, you should start with selling stock number five. Don't stock, start. Don't sell stock number one. Don't sell stock number two. You sell your worst idea first. And then you consider whether to buy the best stock on your watch list or the best stock in your portfolio. And this comes down to this question of how much of it do you own? So the every individual, individual investor is going to have a different risk tolerance. It's going to have a different view on concentration versus diversification. So if you like to own five stocks, and maybe five equally weighted stocks, then you're trying to seek, let's say, 20% of your portfolio into each company. Um, But if you like to have 30 stocks, then you want 3% of your portfolio in each company. And so you need to understand what that is because you might say, okay, my best idea is my number one stock investment holding, but maybe I already have 25% of my portfolio in it. So I'm already overweight my best idea. So although that number one holding is my best idea, maybe I don't want to add to it today. Maybe you do. Maybe you say, okay, maybe I'm maybe my target holding is 20% per stock, but my top company could be 30 or 40%, just depending upon how I feel about it. Well, that's one area where potentially you sell some of your number five company and you buy some of your number one company. But the other way you think about this is what's my next best idea? So maybe your stock number five, it's a good company, but its price has gotten ahead of itself. So the price to earnings ratio is at 30. And you don't really feel comfortable owning the stock at a PE of 30 anymore. So you're trying to figure out where to re- take that money out and put it into a new idea. Well, if your watch list company, the company that's basically number six overall or number one on your watch list, now that company needs to be considered. Is that your best current idea? Because what will happen is you say, well, maybe that company is trading at a PE of 10. And so I can get three times as much current earnings by switching out of my company number five and putting it into my watch list company number one. And that is a substantially different set of um, potential circumstances that it's worth making that change. So that's kind of the way that you might think about it. And you might, I mean, you might run down if you reach that point, you say, okay, well now I'm going to put, you know, this, this money that I'm selling into my number six idea, I'm going to sell my number five idea. It becomes the new number six idea. Maybe it drops down further on the watch list and then you switch out your portfolio that way. And by doing so, you're really considering opportunity cost. You're looking at your opportunity set and saying, where is my money best likely to go? 
And I like to start with what else do you currently own because that's my favorite area to put money to work. When I get new money to work from savings or from dividends, I like to put it to work in the companies I already own first and foremost because those are my best ideas. Those are the companies that at some point were my best ideas and should hopefully still be my best ideas today if I'm still owning them. And so I might say, okay, I get new money. I get another one, two, three percent. Where do I put this money? And it's the same thing between where to put that money and where to put money from stocks that you sell. So opportunity cost is key. I don't want to beat the horse to death any longer on this topic, but I think it's really how you should think about it. What do you currently own? Because that should be your first area to consider. And if you don't want to buy one of the companies you currently own, maybe they've gone up a little in price. Maybe you bought them at a PE of five and now they're at a PE of 12. You like them. They're not too expensive to keep holding, but maybe they're not you know, as cheap as you'd like to buy more. That's fine. Look to your watch list. Use that watch list as the next area for what you shop for. So I've covered a little bit of the opportunity cost piece in terms of what else you own. But I want to talk a little bit more about um, trimming positions. And so this is this idea of when we think back to my list here of watch list and current positions, you know, so I like to own the five stock portfolio. And so your five stock portfolio have your top five ideas of the stocks you own. Now, when your trimming position would be something like, okay, Maybe my number one position is has doubled in size. And so it's gone from 20% of the portfolio to 30% of the portfolio or 35% of the portfolio. So trimming position would be say, okay, why don't I sell half of it and get it back down to the 15, 20% range. And then I'll use the other amount of money to either rebalance into the rest of the portfolio or to buy an additional stock. I don't like doing this. I think in general, it's all or nothing for me. If a company is priced at the point where I'm uncomfortable owning it, um, then I'm probably uncomfortable owning it at all. If it's if it's priced too high where I'm worried about it declining in price, then trimming the position doesn't seem like the best move. Now, I may change this view in the future, but that's kind of where I'm settling at now. Um, once I start selling a stock, it's it's more likely that I eventually just want to sell all of it. That's not to say I you know I I when I want to sell a company, I just hit a market order for all the the entire position. Um a lot of the companies I own might be a liquid, and so it takes time to sell them, and so I might steadily sell down a position. It might take a few days, a few weeks, or a month or something in order to get out of a position just due to the liquidity in the company, but I don't want to just trim a position because normally that would be because the price of the stock is too high, and if I've lost belief in the stock, either due to the price or to the story, I kind of just want to get out and find a new company that I can believe in instead of leaving one in that I don't. Um, and this is true too, because what generally has happened is let's say a company was my number one stock on my list and it doubles in price. Well, typically doubling in price means that you've also lost half of your future potential and earnings. So like if I thought that the company was worth a hundred dollars per share, I bought it at $40 per share and it doubled to $80 per share. Well, instead of having that $60 gap, now I only have a $20 gap. 
which means my potential future return is much lower now. So it's likely not my number one position anymore. Maybe it's my number two, three, four, five. And if it's dropped down far enough to the number five position simply due to price changes, then that means that you know it's the one that's more likely on the chopping block for either selling or trimming. But trimming, I just think, has psychological problems. I think there's probably mathematical reasons to prefer trimming a position to selling all of it or none. But I think psychologically, it can be very distracting as an investor to hold on to positions which you've already started selling. Um, it can start creating you know, seller's remorse and this idea that, oh, I should have kept that portion because maybe the stock runs up in price. It can create... Um, negative thoughts if the pro if the stock were to sell after you started selling then maybe you should have sold more quickly it's just really easy to second guess yourself when you still own some of the stock that you've already started selling so i don't like having to second guess myself i don't like all those um emotional and non-analytical triggers that go on in your head when you sell a position but you only sell part of it so Let's dive into a little bit of, you know, move beyond some of the technical basis and get into some of the more philosophical and strategic reasons why you would sell and kind of how to think about your total portfolio. Um, so the first and easiest way to think about when to sell your stocks, you know, again, we're, we're, we're past opportunity cost itself, which is the number one thing. But, but besides opportunity cost, when should you sell your stock? Well, the easiest thing to think about is you sell when you've made a mistake. If you're wrong about the thesis or your thesis is, is broken, you should sell. So if you expected um, a company to distribute its cash as dividends and instead it uses the cash to make an acquisition, um, you can you can adjust your thesis. You can look at it to see if um, you like the acquisition, but most likely your thesis is broken. If you built your thesis on a dividend payout and it didn't occur and the money was used for some other reasons, whether an acquisition or a sale or some business reinvestment, it's quite possibly that you need to sell because your thesis is wrong. Now, you can update your thesis because maybe you like the new thesis even better. You thought the dividend was going to be worth $10 per share, but they use $10 of cash to buy a company that's worth $50. It's possible. That certainly occurs, and it's what companies try to do with acquisitions. Um, but sometimes you can get thesis creep where basically you're constantly um, making up excuses why you should keep holding and why you wouldn't really make a mistake. And I think generally that can cause a lot of problems. There are exceptions where the thesis changes in a way that's substantially better than you thought it would be. Um, but a lot of times, if you've made a mistake, if you're wrong about something and companies management start doing something that you don't like, it's probably best to sell. So that's the easiest criteria. And if you made a mistake, sell the stock. Um, you don't control the stock price, but you do control your actions. You control your process. And I don't think it's a good process to hold on to stocks you no longer believe in. So you need to make sure your thesis still holds. So that's the easy one. So now we kind of get into some of the idea of portfolio strategy. So the the strategy that you use for your overall portfolio is going to drive your selling tactical decisions. Um, the easiest example is the coffee can portfolio. I plan to turn this um, when to sell stocks question kind of into a series. And I want to cover a series of, of episodes about 
selling stocks in the selling side of investing because I don't think there's enough coverage on it. So I'm going to dive into many of these topics in more detail with a full podcast episode. And one of those topics that I'm going to cover in full, which I think will be the next episode that I cover in full on this topic, is the coffee can portfolio. The coffee can portfolio is a specific investing strategy where once you buy a stock, you never sell it. So the idea is around this idea of a coffee can. So a coffee can, um, you would in the olden days you might buy a stock and have the shared certificate, you know, mailed to you. You have it in person, and then what you do is you roll it up, you put it in a coffee can, and you put it under your bed, or you put it into a safety deposit box, and you don't look at it. The idea being that you know maybe you buy a thousand shares of Walmart, and then that Walmart shares sit in your you know underneath your bed. Um, for 50 years, you cash the dividend checks and you never worry about it. You never consider selling and you become a multimillionaire that way. Um, that's the general idea behind what it means. It means that when you buy a company, you lock that stock up and you never, ever consider selling it. Now, the first thing to realize with this type of strategy is only certain companies are going to qualify. Not every company is going to have the characteristics that are worth not selling ever, which means that you need to be looking specifically for companies that you'd never want to sell. Now, why is that important in the context of this episode? So in my next episode that I cover the coffee can portfolio itself, I'll cover how to figure out who those companies are, what those characteristics are, that sort of thing. But basically, if your strategy is never sell stocks, well, then you don't sell your stocks. That's the underlying part of the strategy because that's what makes the strategy work. And it's important for the coffee can portfolio because a big part of the outperformance available from a coffee can portfolio is due to the benefits of not selling, which is a great time to talk about some of the costs of selling. So when you sell a stock, if you've made a profit on it, you're going to incur tax liability. And that tax liability is a drain on your return. So let's say you make 10% in the stock this year. You're at the 20% tax bracket for capital gains in the United States. So instead of having a 10% rate of return before tax, you only have an 8% rate of return after tax. Well, every time you sell, you're going to incur more tax. Now, this becomes interesting because over a long period of time, the act of not selling means your cumulative rate, your cumulative return is going to be substantially higher because every time you sell, it's going to incur a tax, which means you have less money to invest than you otherwise would have. The difference can be substantial. So let's think about it this way. What happens is you're going to develop a deferred tax liability over time. So let's like say you make an investment, $100,000 into Walmart. Well, over time, let's say seven, 10 years, or 10 years, over 10 years, your investment in Walmart has grown to be $200,000. So you've gone $100,000 to $200,000. Well, that means that now you have $200,000 in Walmart stock. But $50,000 of it is, or $100,000 of it, half of it is deferred in terms of you haven't incurred the liability on it. So there's a deferred gain of $100,000. Well, of that $100,000, that deferred gain is $20,000 in tax. So now your portfolio is $200,000 
It's $100,000 in principal, $80,000 in gain, and $20,000 in tax. Now let's roll this forward another 20 years. So that $20,000 in taxes is basically 10% of the overall value of that um, portfolio or that of that stock. Now let's roll it forward and your $200,000 investment has grown additionally up to a million dollars. So we still have $100,000 original investment, but now we have a million dollars is the total value of that portfolio and 900,000 of it is a gain. Now, through this entire period, you've not sold your stock. So you've not incurred any taxes over the 30 years that you've held this company. So in 30 years, the company's gone up 10x. What has happened? Well, you've paid $0 in taxes. But because you have a $900,000 gain, you owe $180,000 in deferred tax liability, which is is very critical because $190,000 in deferred tax liability is now 19% of the total value of that stock. So in the first part, we said that when it was a $200,000 stock, we had $20,000 in deferred liab tax. Now we have $190,000 in deferred tax. So instead of being 10% of the value of the stock, it's now 19% of the value of stock. And this situation is only going to grow more and more. And it's, it basically approaches that 20% barrier where um, more and more of your investment becomes this gain that is delayed. And you're able to earn profits on that gain and you don't have to pay a taxes on them the whole time. So what's happened here is that now you have a million dollars of stock, but the minute you sell that stock, you only have $810,000 of cash. And now you have to find a company that is sufficiently undervalued compared to Walmart that $810,000 invested in company X is worth more than a million dollars invested in Walmart. And that differential is very devastating for the performance of your portfolio because it's hard to find a company that can make up for 20% less principal. They're out there and all that sort of things, but, but that's one of the benefits of these coffee can portfolios. You get that delayed tax liability. And the other piece is it's preferable for individual investors. It's hard to implement professionally because the idea is that you buy a stock and then you, you never sell it. It's hard to monetize fees when there's no selling involved. Um, but that's one area and it's something I'm going to explore in more depth, but basically it has a lot of benefits for delaying taxes and allowing you to grow your portfolio higher and all sorts of things. It also benefits from um, really taking advantage of, of some of the mathematics of diversification and not really managing your portfolio as a portfolio. But again, whole future episode on that. Just wanted to give the primer on that piece. Another piece for when to sell stocks is you really need to think about the return differential. So besides the tax piece that I just covered, you also need to consider that um, you don't want to sell a stock simply because you have a new idea that's 1% better. So Basically, just because you have an idea that has a better return potential than your current holding doesn't mean it's worth selling and buying the new company because that return differential might be within your margin of error. 
I don't know about you, but I think it's in general very hard to calculate the intrinsic value of a company. I think it's very general, hard to determine what the true risks are of a company. So your error rate on an investment idea could be very big. It could be 10, 20, 30, 40%. There could be substantial margin of error on your estimate of what the potential future returns will be and what the potential risks will be, which means you don't want to buy a stock that's only marginally better than your current idea. For instance, let's say you own a company that's a PE of 14 and you find a new company that's at a PE of 13. Those companies aren't substantially different to the point that you should trade up to the PE of 13 unless it has higher growth rates, better management, better quality, stuff like that, because the valuation itself is not sufficiently different. To me, PE of 13 and 14 are basically the same. PE of 12 and 14 are basically the same. You need to understand the differences here to say you want a substantial difference. There's a big difference between a PE of 10 and a PE of 15, or PE of 10 and a PE of 20. Those are big differences. What you want is at least a 5% return differential. So like the idea being that your current stock has a future percent future rate of return of 5%, but your new idea has a future rate of return of 10%. Or your current future returns on your current stock are 10%, but the new idea has 15% expected rate of return. That 5% difference is sufficiently different that it's probably outside the room of error. Now, your room of error might be huge. You might still be wrong about that, whatever. But at least it's a good differential that it, it checks you from making too many changes to your portfolio too quickly. The main piece to take away here is that you don't want to quibble over small differences um, because they're basically just calculation differences. There are so many assumptions you use when valuing companies that it's impossible to be certain enough that those differences are real. One of the pieces that were brought, was brought up by um, the patron asking this question was, this assertion that maybe the idea would be that you should buy great companies during their growth phase, um, but because every company eventually stops growing, you should sell them when they lose their advantages, when they lose their moat. And I think there's a few problems with this idea in general, um, because while every company has a growth phase and then a stability phase and a future decline, it's very difficult to predict when a company will lose its advantages. So once a company is recognized as having lost its advantages, usually the price deterioration has already occurred. So if you want to maximize your profits, you likely need to sell before the advantages have been lost and when other investors still expect those advantages to be around for many years in the future. So if you wait to sell to the point when both the advantages are lost or when the advantages aren't lost yet, but people expect them to be lost in the future, the price is probably already taking a big hit. And so it makes it really difficult to use this, this idea to manage when to sell a company. So if you're going to take this frame of reference, I really like the idea that I had before where, you know, sell if your thesis is broken, sell if you made a mistake, but don't simply sell because, um, the the advantages of a company have gone away because by that time the price might have adjusted so much that that's already been taken into account and this is really the key idea 
one of the key ideas around value investing is that advantages seem to be overvalued by the market and disadvantages seem seem to be undervalued by the market or overpunished. Um, that, you know, when the coronavirus hit, you had a lot of companies drop in stock price rapidly, let's say banks or credit card companies, because the thought process that there was going to be massive defaults, no one would pay their credit cards, and that everyone's like, well, yes, the price has gone down, yes, this is a good deal, and I would have liked it before, but I'd rather wait a little longer until I have more certainty on what's going to happen. Well, the problem is, is by the time everyone had certainty to see how the coronavirus is going to work out, the price had already risen. So, you know, one company I looked at was like Discover. And well, the price reached like $27 a share when it was $90 a share before the coronavirus. Well, when it was $90 a share, I was like, this is a great price at $60 a share. But then it hits $60 per share and you're like, ah, I don't know if this is a good deal. And then it hits 50 and then 40, 30. And it's like, I don't know if it's a good deal because I don't know if the company's going to still be around due to coronavirus. Well, by the time I'm confident that the company is going to still be around, well, now the price is back up to $80 a share. The market tends to adjust quickly to incorporate new information like that. So you need to have an alternative theory than the one the market has. If your theory as a company is that the advantage is around, that's fine. But by the time you realize the advantages are lost, unless you realize that before everyone else, it's likely too late. So the last point I really want to cover on this topic of when to sell stocks in this podcast is one of positive optionality and selling above intrinsic value. So I think as value investors, one of the ideas put forth by Benjamin Graham is that you calculate a stock's intrinsic value and you buy it at a discount to that intrinsic value and then when the stock rises to intrinsic value, you sell. One of the issues here is that it's almost impossible to accurately calculate intrinsic value. Now, if you have a high turnover portfolio, you have diversified, you have 25, 30 stocks, then that is kind of what you should be doing in some sense, um, depending upon your strategy and, and stuff. But I think it's hard to calculate intrinsic value. You know, if you say a company's stock price is worth $100, it's it's not really worth $100. Maybe it's worth somewhere between $50 and $200. And your certainty that it's worth $100 is probably pretty low, that it's worth exactly $100. So when do you sell? Do you sell when it hits $95? Do you sell when it hits $100? Do you sell when it hits $110? It's, it's not exactly clear. And I think the problem is, is that at least when I approach valuing a company, I like to be conservative. I like to be make estimates that I think are reasonable. Because what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to estimate an intrinsic value floor. And I think intrinsic value always needs to be thought about as a range. But what I want to do is I want to estimate the number that I don't think intrinsic value is below. So if I say intrinsic value is $100 per share, what I'm really saying is I don't think the intrinsic value is worse than $100 per share. I might think that it's anywhere from $100 to $500 a share. So that means if I can buy it at $50 a share, then yeah, the price might double, but the price might also 10x, which means that when the price hits $100 a share, I probably don't think that's sufficient reason to sell. I might want to hold on, and it's because what I ignore when I'm calculating intrinsic value is I ignore positive optionality, which means that there are surprises that can happen, and if it's a good surprise, it means the intrinsic value will be higher than I calculated. 
And the worse the stock price is when I buy it, the more likely positive optionality is going to occur. Because if everyone assumes everything is bad about a company, we're talking a deep value stock, then most surprises are going to be good news versus bad news. Because the bad news is expected. And if if you if most of the com- the news releases about a company that you own are likely to be positive surprises or not as bad as you expected surprises, that means that the stock price could go substantially higher than whatever you calculated as the intrinsic value. So I think it can be a mistake to sell a stock at intrinsic value because your intrinsic value should be understood to be a range and not precise, and that your focus on precision could lead you astray. Um, so generally, the general takeaway for this episode is that selling is really hard. It's really hard to understand. Um, you need to think in terms of opportunity cost instead of precision. What else do you own? What is your current best idea and how much of it do you own? Because I think you should always consider putting more money into your best ideas. And that should be the way you think about it. It's it's generally not a good idea to sell to go to cash unless the stock is at a substantially high price. You're talking PEs of 30, 35, 40, 45, 50. And at super high PEs, it does make sense to go to cash. But ideally, you consistently are out there finding new ideas. And so you always have a good idea to put a stock into. Um, and you can make a lot of money selling a stock at a PE of 20 that you think is actually worth 25. And buying a stock that you that's at a PE of five that you think is worth a PE of fifteen, and that differential can really help you out because you're going to increase your look through earnings on your portfolio over time. So I hope that gives a nice primer for when to sell stocks. Like I said, I will have an additional episode in this series coming out in the future about the coffee can portfolio specifically, and I will explore other topics in depth um, as future parts of this series because I think. A selling stocks series is a good area for me to explore because I don't think it's covered enough in the investing literature and I don't think it's covered as much in people's thought process on their investing strategy. Thank you for listening to this episode. The full show notes for this episode, including my outline for today's podcast, are available at DIYinvesting.org slash episode 106. If you choose to become a patron of the show at DIYinvesting.org slash patron, you get access to my exclusive investing research where I'm documenting the research I do, just the way I think about stocks, all that sort of thing. And you can also ask me questions and I will sometimes discuss your questions on the show. And thank you for listening. And until next time, stop paying fees, start building wealth. Thank you for listening to the DIY Investing Podcast. Please visit our website and subscribe to our email list at DIYinvesting.org for guides, videos, and resources to help make you a better investor. The DIY Investing Podcast is presented for general informational and entertainment purposes only. I have not considered your specific situation or risk profile, and I have not provided investment advice. The information presented on the DIY Investing Podcast should not be construed as investment advice. The views and opinions expressed on the DIY Investing Podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's host or sponsors. 
DIY Investing, its producers, sponsors, and host, Trey Henniger, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based upon information or viewpoints presented on the DIY Investing Podcast.